for Pacifica Radio, July 10th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, and welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. All right, I'd like to introduce to you all my good friend, Kyle Anzalone, opinion editor of Antiwar.com and host of the podcast, Conflicts of Interest. Welcome to the show, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Very happy to have you on the show here and uh, really appreciate all the great work that you're doing at Antiwar.com and at the Libertarian Institute as well. And so I was uh, hoping we can catch up on the war in Ukraine. The last few weeks here on the L.A. show, we've been focusing on Yemen and the campaign to uh, pressure Congress to pass H.J. Res. 87, the War Powers Resolution, to end that war in Yemen. By the way, that's 833-STOP-WAR for everybody to uh, help get involved in that. But it's time we catch up on the Russia-Ukraine conflict there and America's role in it all. So um, I guess, first of all, Kyle, can you give us an update on more or less, you know, big picture, the battlefield situation in eastern Ukraine now? Yeah, so the Russian Russia continues to advance, but it seems to be at a fairly slower pace. They in the past week have, uh, I guess, gained in the control of the entire Luhansk region, which if you have the Donbass, it's made up of the Donetsk, which is the, the southern area, and then the Luhansk, which is north of that. And uh, the report is they control all of that now. And that's been the case for about a week. A lot of times uh, it, it seems, you know, like the the conflict in Syria or something like that, Scott, where they, you know, announce they've taken the city and then there's fighting around the city for another week. Sometimes the Ukrainian forces make, you know, some limited gains back or something like that. But ultimately, you know, Russia secures it over the course of about a week or so. And that seems to have now happened in the entire Luhansk. Now, there was some reporting that uh, Putin gave a speech, you know, claiming victory in Luhansk and telling the soldiers, you know, to rest up and uh, things like that. And some people reported that as Russia was taking an operational pause. And that doesn't really seem to be the case at all. Uh, I think it was just Putin giving a, a victory speech. Uh, fighting goes on in the uh, Donetsk region and then in the south of Ukraine as well, the region above uh, the Crimean Peninsula, where Russia has, you know, extended into some Ukrainian territory. Uh, Zelensky claimed yesterday that they had used the U.S. provided or the U.K. provided uh, long long range rockets to take out some Russian positions that had allowed either Ukraine to make some gains or to prevent Russia from being able to launch an offensive, depending on uh, what, you know, what second you're listening to Ukrainian President Zodmir Zelensky. So it seems like, you know, the, the fights going on in the east and in the south of Ukraine still. Uh, Russia also pulled back from Snake Island. Uh, you know, this has been kind of a, a big 
talking point around the war, what's happening on Snake Island, uh, because when Russia seized it in the initial days of the war, the UK, uh, Ukraine launched a somewhat propaganda campaign about uh, the soldiers' determination before they surrendered. Uh, but about a week ago, Russia announced they were withdrawing from that island. Russia said it was because uh, they wanted to have a good faith, a show of good faith that they were allowing grain to leave Ukrainian ports. Uh, Ukraine said it was their constant targeting of Russian forces on that island that caused uh, Russia to withdraw from that position. And I do think maybe Ukraine uh, had a better point there because they have launched several attacks on the Russian forces on that island. It doesn't really seem like there's anywhere uh, to take cover from Ukrainian rockets or drones on that island. And so uh, it may not just been strategic for Russia to continue to hold on to at this point. And so they withdrew and the Ukrainians have now raised their flag on that island again and have soldiers deployed there. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, a few weeks ago when I talked with uh, Colonel McGregor, I said, well, look, it, they um, controlled the city of Kharkiv there in, I guess, right at the border of the Luhansk province. And then they withdrew and the Ukrainians retook it. And so maybe that means the Russians are on the run. And McGregor says, no, you don't understand. What's happening in the war is not a matter of just taking territory. It's a matter of the Russians slowly grinding the Ukrainian army down to a nub and one way or the other. And if that means strategic retreat here or there, that's consistent with the goal of destroying the military of the other side, which is the real goal. On the other hand, they have created, it seems like their first priority was to create this so-called land bridge from Russia across the entire south of the uh, Donbass region there in order to connect Crimea, you know, officially all the way to Russia there and secure those fresh water resources. And then according to some battle maps I saw, Kyle, it looks like they have solidified control not just over the city of Kherson, which is to the northwest of the Crimean Peninsula there, sort of the New Orleans of the Dnieper River. It looks like to me the, the biggest major port city at the bottom of this major north-south river uh, emptying into the Black Sea there. Uh, but it looks like they've made quite a bit of progress moving west from there. And they're only, I think, two towns away from Odessa. And I did read that there was at least some strikes on Odessa, although uh, I'm not certain where from, if it was from ships at sea in the Black Sea or what. So I wonder if there's much reporting on that part of the front there and, and whether you have an indication of uh, whether there is a major assault on Odessa coming soon or whether the Russians are going to, you know, stay east of those couple of towns there and just take Kherson and leave it at that? Or does anybody know? Sorry to ask you to predict the future, but I just wonder if there's actually any indications on the ground of of uh, what may be coming there. Well, uh, you know, leaving the, the position at Snake Island may suggest that Russia isn't going to move on Odessa uh, because I know they had suggested that having that island would be strategic in, in taking Odessa. Uh, but at the same time, the, you know, Ukrainians and the Americans and the British are saying that they're in no hurry to negotiate whatsoever. And so this war is going to continue to drag on. And I would assume the longer it goes, the further west that Russia is going to go and they will eventually reach Odessa. But, I, you know, predicting that the timetable is, I feel like, kind of difficult in part because, you know, you have to remember that Russia really isn't fighting Ukraine here. They are fighting a NATO 
military at this point uh, you, with the long range rockets and artillery that Ukraine has. I mean, maybe they're missing some aspects of it, like the Air Force. Uh, but now they're even taught or I guess they are sending uh, air defense systems to Ukraine, uh, Norwegian air defense systems to Ukraine. And so uh, I suspect that it's going to take Russia and it come at heavy cost from Russia to take Ukrainian territory. Uh, the more weapons the West pours in, they're training Ukrainian forces all over Europe. I wrote for the Institute this week, the New York Times reported on uh, several U.S. Uh, special forces veterans who are training Ukrainians near the front lines and helping them plan operations uh, using all this new military equipment that they're familiar with uh, from the wars in the Middle East. And so they, you know, I suspect that Ukraine is going to put up a major fight and deal blows to Russia, which likely slows any kind of plans that Russia actually has to take these major cities, especially Odessa, when I, you know, I suspect that Russia will try to take it because if you're going to go to war in Ukraine and fight this long drawn out conflict, I would imagine they would want to have a lot of control on what happens, what happens in Ukraine in the future. And I think cutting Ukraine off from the Black Sea would allow Moscow to have that control. And so I guess strategically they would really want it, but it's going to come at a big cost with the amount of weapons that Ukraine is getting. Yeah. Now, I saw this uh, statistic this morning, but it was just based on claims by the Kiev government about the casualty rates and, you know, uh, amount of equipment they've destroyed on the Russian side. And they had the casualties up near 30,000 or something like that. I forgot the number exactly, but I wonder if you have any real indication, ballpark estimate, what sounds credible to you or not about how many military have died on each side and especially how many civilian Ukrainians have died in the war so far, do you know? Uh, I know that the number of civilians killed is in the thousands, uh, over 3000, I think was the last time I saw the UN number, but I feel like the UN has not kept up with it as well as they did in maybe the early days of the war where it seemed like they, they maybe had a, a pretty realistic death count. So I'm guessing that's going to take some time to really come in as far as the Ukrainian or the Russian side. It, it's just too hard to tell. Uh, for a long time, Ukraine was essentially denying that they had any casualties or very few. And then, you know, we had emissions from the Ukrainian government that they had 500 soldiers dying a day, which, you know, would suggest numbers in the tens of thousands uh, dead so far in this war. But at the same time, you, you have to assume anything coming out of the Ukrainian government is propaganda looking to get Western support. And so maybe after, you know, looking tough for a few months, now they have to start, feel like they have to start looking weak or trying to get some more sympathy from the West uh, or in, in order to get more weapon shipments or, or something, you know, that's maybe the propaganda calculation. Uh, the 30,000, it seems really high as far as the Russian casualties go. I think uh, in Newsweek, I read an article from Will Arkin not that long ago where he uh, w was basically saying that he believed the 20,000 casualty number. And so right. if that's correct, then the 30,000 would now make correct. I'm skeptical of all that, but uh, I, I suppose that it's going to probably be years after the war that we finally understand how many people really died in this thing. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to him right around the time that he wrote that, and he certainly believed that that was true, but he didn't seem to be applying much skepticism to those claims. And the way I put it to him, and this is fairly early in the war, maybe a month into it, my geez, 20,000 dead. You'd have to show me a pretty big battlefield full of smoldering Russian tanks for me to believe that. I mean, that's a lot of guys to die. 
when we lost 7,000 in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, which we're fighting insurgencies, you know, in their neighborhoods and not, you know, set peace battles, but still, um, doesn't sound right to me, but you know, I really don't know. Uh, I, you know, and, and I agree with you, but at the same time, Scott, I will say, you know, they've taken down at least one Russian troop transport plane, uh, and a couple of ships. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, the casualties stack up pretty quick from events like that too. Yeah. And if, you know, maybe they'd taken down a couple troop transport planes, I mean, you could be looking at like a couple thousand troops just right there and also from the ships. So, yeah, uh, the numbers could be higher than, than they seem if you're just, you know, uh, looking at taints and things like that, but it, maybe with the transports and things, the, anyway. the numbers get a little bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about thousands, but on a plane, but there've been reports of hundreds lost that way on the Russian side. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all. LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. LibertasBella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, All of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. So you mentioned the weapons and the differences in weapons. The longer this goes on. The uh, more the promises about, oh, no, we're going to keep them at defensive weapons like javelin missiles that have very short range and obviously can't be used to attack inside Russia with and that kind of thing. And then those restrictions start falling away. It doesn't sound like people are calling for a no fly zone anymore. I thought, you know, maybe those calls would start picking back up again. But it seems like people finally have dropped that as though a no fly zone is some magical force field rather than a call to direct aerial combat with Russian jets and anti-aircraft missiles on the ground, including inside Russia, in order to enforce it. Seems like they're over that, but can you give us an update on the overall amount of billions of dollars that have been spent uh, by the U.S. In, and allies, for that matter, and, and give us a little bit more about the changes in the weapons? I know that they're getting bigger and, and more sophisticated with longer range and so forth. Yeah. The Pentagon this week put out a statement, I think, saying that they've transferred $6.9 billion in weapons uh, in total to Ukraine since the war started. And then I think that's about $8 billion total since the start of the Biden administration. Uh, but what, you know, when you try to calculate the total number, it, 
it's definitely in the tens of billions. I find it hard to actually figure it out because like a part of the $40 billion aid bill that Congress passed was meant to refill some stockpiles of weapons that had already been sent and also transfer some weapons to countries like Poland uh, that had sent weapons to Ukraine. And so, you know, to, to figure out all the accounting here is going to be very difficult, but tens of billions of dollars have definitely gone to Ukraine and increasingly sophisticated, as you point out. Uh, Dave DeCamp at Antiwar.com recently covered the $820 million package that was approved, uh, I, I think, about a week ago now, just after the 4th of July. And that includes Norwegian air defense uh, systems. And so these are going to give Ukraine increased ability to, to you you know, shoot down Russian missiles or planes or things like that. Uh, no Patriot missile systems or anything quite so provocative yet, Scott. But, you know, these are major, uh, you know, Western weapon systems that are being transferred to Ukraine. I think most importantly, and what at least the Ukrainians are saying are, are the only thing really making a big difference on the battlefield, are the long-range uh, rocket systems. The U.S. has sent the HIMRAs, which have a range of, well, they, they can fire rockets up to 200 miles, but the ammunition that the U.S is providing Ukraine for those systems is at 50 miles. And then the UK is sending the US-made M270 rocket systems with also a range of 50 miles. Now, the White House uh, was very insistent on getting an insurance from Kiev that they would not use the HIMRAs to carry out attacks inside of Russia, where the the UK defense minister, uh, Ben Wallace, has actually suggested that you know, Ukraine should use uh, Western weapons to carry out attacks inside of Russia. And I don't think uh, the UK got that same assurance from uh, the U uh, from Ukraine that they you know want to use the, the weapons for those re uh, reasons. And there have been attacks carried out inside of Russia within the past week in territory less than 50 miles from the Ukrainian border. So, you know, this is going on. Uh, I also covered a story. It was uh, first reported by the Times of London, uh, but they have a, a couple of Ukrainian special forces operators saying that they carried out missions inside of Russia. And there certainly have been explosions and people killed inside of Russia by either Ukrainian missiles or sabotage efforts. And so the, it does make sense that, you know, they are carrying out some attacks inside of Russia and even inside of Belarus now, too, where uh, this past week, Lukashenko said that their uh, air defense systems intercepted, I believe, three Ukrainian uh, missiles that were directed at Belarusian uh, military facility. Man. Um, and now uh, you mentioned about the grain in the context of Snake Island there. But can you kind of elaborate on the problem with the grain? Of course, both sides are blaming each other and all of this kind of thing. But what's the truth of who's keeping the grain from the hungry people of the global south here, Kyle? Uh, everyone, I think, uh, because essentially only Turkey is actually really pushing negotiations here and I guess the UN as well. But, uh, the, in the U S that, you know, you mentioned that people seem to have given up on the no fly zone, but this week I read probably two or three mainstream, you know, news articles, opinion pieces saying that the U S needs to, you know, use the NATO military capabilities to break the Russian blockade of the Ukrainian ports. And so this is, I think, probably the same level of provocation as enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine would be uh, to sink the Russian Black Fleet, uh, uh, fleet which is what they're talking about uh, doing there. So there are 
water mines that are an issue. Uh, Turkey says that they are mapped out, and so they should be able to ensure that they can safely escort cargo ships, civilian cargo ships, to Ukrainian ports. Uh, And Russia has said that they would give safe passage, meaning that Russia says they would guarantee they would not attack any grain ships going to Ukrainian ports. Now, uh, Russia has spoken with Ankara on this issue and seems willing to move forward. And Kiev has just outright said that they're not going to engage in, in these talks. And so, you, you know, you could blame the Russian war for it because obviously the grain was moving in and out of Ukraine before the, the Russian invasion. Uh, but Russia is saying that, you know, they're willing to work out a deal that allows them to carry out their war and for the grain uh, to be able to leave Black Sea ports. And Ukraine is just unwilling to engage in those conversations. And the U.S. doesn't seem willing at all. And and any of their conversation has been to give Ukraine increased uh, anti-ship capabilities like harpoon missiles. I think Uh, It was another NATO state that actually gave uh, Ukraine the launcher, but we have provided them with the harpoon missiles that could sink Russian ships, which I understand are kind of very dangerous and unpredictable missiles that that could cause a real crisis if they were actually used by Ukraine. Uh, I think Ukraine has mainly used their uh, Turkish-made drones to sink Russian ships. I'm not sure how many uh, ships they've actually targeted with the the harpoon missiles that they've received, though. Man, all right, well— uh, let me ask you this. When was the last time Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia? There, That would be February 15th, which is incredible because as we're recording this, Scott, I believe both men are in Bali, Indonesia right now for the G20 conference. And it would be an absolutely great time to have some talks. But instead, I think Blinken is only planning on speaking with the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, which I, I don't expect to go well because the U.S. held that real provocative meeting. The FBI and MI5 in London held a joint conference, which they were saying that China's the biggest threat to the world and sabotage all of Western business and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, pretty hard to get them to help us negotiate with Russia when I guess the Americans don't want to negotiate with Russia anyway, and then they're in the middle of accusing the Chinese of a bunch of other stuff right now, which as far as them, what, hacking into American corporations' secrets or whatever, if that's the accusation? Sounds like it's probable anyway. I don't know. What are the specific accusations there, by the way? There, uh, there was a whole lot of you know specific accusations, that, but basically that's it. You know that China is trying to steal Western innovation, and so you know some of it's just outright IP theft, like they. Once Apple puts out an iPhone, uh, once they get in China, they'll take it apart, figure out how to make it and make their own iPhone for a quarter of the price or something like that. But then also there is some of this uh, claims of hacking and, and information warfare and espionage to try to, you know, you know, some Chinese student is coming to an American university and the Americans are alleging that that student really isn't there to study engineering, but rather to know what. Caltech is doing in their engineering department and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, figuring out what kind of innovation is happening and bringing that information back to China. Yep. Sounds like making the whole world wealthier to me. But anyway, talking with Kyle Anzalone from antiwar.com. Uh, now, let me ask you this. Before the war started, the presumption 
on a lot of people's parts was that the war ain't going to last long as far as the Russian military versus the Ukrainian military. And I think they made the Russians made their own mistakes the way they invaded from 20 different directions at once or whatever at the beginning there. And of course, the Ukrainian side has benefited greatly from American and other allied weapons uh, pouring into the country since then. So surprisingly, as we're recording this conversation about a third of the way through June here, the war is still between the Ukrainian military and state uh, with uh, against the Russians. And now um, I saw that I forgot if it was a congressman or a senator was saying what he wants to see is an insurgency in Ukraine right down to hand to hand combat kind of thing. In other words, really embracing the critics cliche that you want to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. And then these American congressmen are essentially saying, yeah, exactly. Let's do that. Um, and so, in other words, uh, from that point of view, anyway, it sounds like the war could go on, you know, essentially for the rest of the year, maybe more than that. And also, of course, um, it was notable that Henry Kissinger at the Davos Forum sort of read the riot act to these people, at least as far as, you know, Kissinger goes and said, listen, guys we got to wrap this war up in the next couple of months here. We can't afford to have this drag on and the unintended knock-on effects from this level of confrontation with Russia here. Come on. And, you know, he may be the only one who could speak that kind of sense to them from that position. So, but I wonder, you know, in all your um, examination of the news coverage and so forth, if you have a very good taste for what the consensus is in D.C. about whether... They listen to him at all, for example, or whether their plan is still that even if it takes another year before the Russians completely destroy the Ukrainian state and another two or 10 years of insurgency by uh, Ukrainians against the occupying Russian forces after that, that that's what America wants to see. They don't want to talk with Sergei Lavrov ever again. They want this war to last indefinitely. Or is there any kind of real debate going on? In D.C., never mind out here in the country where nobody cares what we think at all, unless we're Israelis or Saudis. I mean, not in the halls of power, certainly. If you look at what happened, uh, the Western leaders just met in Europe for the G7 and then for the NATO summit in Madrid. And every statement was, you know, we are prepared for a long conflict. We're digging in for the long war. Uh, we're prepared to do what is necessary to defeat Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Michael Tracy was at the NATO summit, and he said that the Turkish president, Erdogan, was the only one that even mentioned talks of all the Western leaders. And so, you know, this is kind of telling that Turkey seems to be essentially the only country on planet Earth that has any interest in diffusing the tensions uh, between these two countries and is trying to play an active role in doing it. And, and so, yeah, I think it's going to drag on for a long time. You mentioned the insurgency there, and, and I do think that's the plan ultimately is, you know, to let this turn into the insurgency uh, that Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about in 2014 when he said, you know, that to bleed Russia fighting hand to hand in Ukrainian streets. However, they have been able to put up a crazy fight against Russia. Uh, but, you know, really, the the amount of Western weapons that have flowed into Ukraine since this conflict started, I don't think was really predicted by anyone, Scott, and uh, certainly not in Moscow either, because it, it has been just a 
insane level. I mean, if you look at what we're talking about, tens of millions of dollars going to Ukraine in four or five months, uh, this is, you know, makes Ukraine one of the largest and most well-funded militaries on the planet Earth. Uh, and certainly at this point is probably outmatching at least what Russia was on track to spend in 2022 or had planned to spend in 2022. Uh, and all the Ukrainian forces are receiving Western training at this point. You know, they're being shipped out of Ukraine. They're trained in Germany, the UK, Poland, another country uh, sent back in. And so, uh, and all these Ukrainian forces were training in the past year since Biden took office, Ukraine was engaging in a lot of and hosting NATO war games. So all these troops are Western trained and it, you know, people I think are making it out that Ukraine is just like this little scrappy army uh, that's fighting back, you know, with their AK-47s or something like that, like it's the Soviets invading Afghanistan. Uh, but really, this is the Russians invading Ukraine, which has almost a modern NATO military at this point, a large population, massive conscription. Uh, just this week, the Ukrainian military announced that if you're uh, a young man in Ukraine, you cannot even leave your region without uh, approval from the local recruitment board. And so you know, they have millions and millions of of young men to throw into the meat grinder here and you know as as dark as it sounds you know to fight russia to the last ukrainian they're really talking about doing that at this point there's no interest in negotiations at this point they know they could keep providing ukraine with military equipment and look even if the 10 ukrainians that are operating the the long-range missile system end up getting killed by a russian missile uh they know that hopefully that you know they'll fire a couple missiles before and kill a couple dozen russian troops and maybe destroy some russian military equipment and they view all those interactions as a positive trade-off for the West, right? Because the Ukrainians are dying, but ultimately they are taking Russia down, bleeding Russia. This is, you know, costing them a lot of blood and money to lose all this military equipment. And it's all a victory for them. And so I think the longer this strides on, the, the more of a victory will be seen for the West. And I do assume that this is going to turn into an insurgency. It was uh, Senator Blumenthal and Graham were just in Kiev and, and talked with um, Zelensky. And uh, another thing they're pushing, Sky, is to make Russia a uh, state sponsor of terrorism. And they're walking around Ukraine and going, well, I sure would feel terrorized if I live here. And that's the argument that they're using. I think there's a very good chance, actually, that they're going to pass this bill. And that's going to put a heavy round of sanctions on Russia that even if this war were to end, there, there's no way to really mend ties between Washington and Moscow and in any way reestablish normal relations once Russia's on the terrorist, terrorism list and faces all the sanctions that they already face. That's it. We're out of time. I really appreciate your time on the show, everybody. That's the great Kyle Anzalone, opinion editor at antiwar.com. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Scott. And that's it for Antiwar Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And you find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. Follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. I'm here every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.